0: Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England, possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last ice age to the present day. Let's hear the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far.
1: It is the 900s. Viking Jorvik has mushroomed into a major port and industrial centre. Part of a Scandinavian world that stretches from Asia to America and Africa. Around 15,000 people now call it home, and it attracts new arrivals all the time. Many come willingly, but others are not given a choice. We touched about
0: the manufacturing, we've mentioned the trade now. I've was watching a lecture by Neil Price online uh, from the British Museum, just talking about the Scandinavian mindset was unusual. Let's put it that way, and also they liked trading things, and one of the things that they traded was people. So there's an awful lot of slavery going on. Is there any evidence for slaves in? Your
2: maybe not evidence in the traditional way and um, we don't find you know shackles or, or things like that I, I think i'm right in saying that it, it was definitely happening here Yeah,
3: slavery is an institution across all of europe in the early middle ages
2: but we just don't have the actual archaeological evidence that it that it was happening but w- there's there's really no doubt that it would have been here
3: yeah um the text like the doomsday book for instance we can tell from documents like that that slavery is all over the country by the late late period. It was here in Anglo-Saxon times, of course, as well. But slaves, they don't leave an obvious impact on the archaeological record, of course, when you find human remains, unless they've got some amazing grave goods you don't really know what the ins social? and
2: out of their life and yeah. Yeah, their social class and things like that. Yeah, uh, I am Miranda. I am the site manager of the Jorvik Viking Centre um, and I'm also one of the co-hosts of That Jorvik Viking Thing podcast.
3: And I'm Lucas Norton. I am a digital engagement assistant at Jorvik Viking Centre and I'm also co-host of That Jorvik
0: Viking Thing podcast. It's a different sort of form of servitude than in the Romans. You could... Kind of buy your way or work your way up if you were lucky in the roman period do we know
3: so if we look beyond uh, jorvik to the wider kind of viking world using the icelandic sagas for instance um we know that slaves can become free eventually the specific mechanics of it aren't entirely clear but for instance when the vikings settle iceland they take lots and lots of slaves with them particularly from ireland it seems i think genetic tests in iceland show huge amounts of irish dna up there and lots of our saga characters seem to be like the grandchildren of a released slave from an earlier generation. And there's even a bit of a trope where a um, maybe a, a low-status character in the saga will go, well, my grandfather was a slave, but he was the son of an Irish prince, I'll have you know, something like that. Uh, the Norse, the, the Vikings are quite classist, though. We, we get a real sense of that from... The literature that um s- slaves aren't really considered to have the same rights as other humans but there is there is a way for you to work your way up and win your freedom
0: eventually right what was life like for women obviously you can't just lump them all together um, and it depends on how much money and how much status you've got and doubtless there were female slaves but what was life like for women in your thing.
2: Fortunately, we have just uh, finished releasing four episodes um, to coincide with Women's History Month, so... We consider ourselves to be the absolute experts on this topic. <laughs> but, I mean, like you kind of touched on, it's absolutely impossible to say what life would have been like for a Viking woman because it depended on how old they were. It depended on how much money they had. It depended on where in the world they were, you know. Um, so it's it's quite difficult to say, really. Unfortunately, there's, there's no kind of concise, this is what women were like sort of thing. So we have talked about, you know, what life would have been like for for everyday women um, and how they would have, for the most part, been expected to get married and hopefully secure kind of advantageous marriages for their family. Um, And then once they were married, they were expected to have children and and bring them up. But marriage kind of afforded them a little bit more freedom than they would have had prior to that um, under their, their parents. Um, like people have this, this thing about Viking women, about how they were able to divorce their husbands and things like that, but that even that had a caveat, you know, and of course they, they could divorce their husbands. We talk about that a little bit in one of our episodes, but what money did they have of their own? If, if they were just a, an everyday kind of woman, they, they wouldn't have necessarily had the means to, to fall back on, um, you know, their own finances and their own jobs and things like that. Um, if they were just an everyday woman of Jorvik, like, like we might've been.
0: Would they have been involved in business?
2: They could have been.
3: Yeah, we talked about that in a recent episode. Uh, Particularly uh, textile production is very much linked with women. Uh, In the graves of Scandinavian women, we often find things like um, weights used for spinning thread and weaving battens, things like that. And if you imagine a Viking longship, for instance, you've got all of the wood. So we've got carpenters putting that together. The ropes being spun by rope makers. There's also... A massive square piece of fabric, isn't there? That, of course, has been woven by Viking women. And I forget the precise figures, but if one woman did that herself, we're talking years for her to make that. I think he
2: said like five years or something, yeah. That's, of course, considering that she would have been clothing her, her family, making food, things like that. So this wouldn't have been five years of nonstop work, but if she was doing it in her spare time.
3: So then if you were to imagine a fleet of ships all being given sails, you need a kind of, a, you know, a small scale industrial production to yeah. produce these. So it's hypothesized there could be groups of women with textile workshops selling their wares
0: to these Viking raiders who need their sails, things like that. So it's quite a communal effort.
2: It could have been. Yeah, Mm.
0: there's a possibility that you had groups of women who were banding together and making their own living from weaving. Um, If you're talking about textiles, the other thing is, what did Scandinavian women wear? Do we know?
3: Um, Yes, so there are different fashions throughout the period and in different areas as well. Of course, textiles don't tend to survive particularly well, although Coppergate, but he did survive pretty well. Um, Most of what we've got is bits and pieces of fabric, but from that we can tell the materials they're wearing, the, the colours. colours as well. So we've got all the various plant dyes they were using to make a whole spectrum of colours. Which colours? We've got particularly uh, red and pink made from the madder dye is particularly common in the archaeology of this area.
2: And it, it's quite synonymous really with Joabic, especially the red. Um, I mean, during the Coppergate dig, as they were digging down, they found like, that the soil was stained red because of the dye that they were throwing out and things like that as well.
3: Uh, We have blue made from woad and um, yellow made from weld. They're the kind of the three primary dyes that we have for those three primary colours. But yeah, there's all sorts of other plants you can use to make a whole spectrum of colours. In terms of materials, we're looking at wool, linen and silk. And also they would weave particular patterns into them for for decorative purposes too, like, like kind of, you know, your herringbone patterns and diamond twill patterns. But based upon particularly grave evidence as well from other sites, we can see the types of jewellery that Viking women wore. Um, in the earlier period, they're wearing these kind of apron dresses They look a bit like dungarees. <laughs> um, but they're held together by a pair of brooches on either side, sometimes with a string of decorative beads in between them as well, made of glass, amber and jets, materials like that there would have also have been um headdresses as well uh, at jorvik there was a silk hat that was found that we think a high status viking woman would have worn there's possibly an element of you know kind of hiding your hair for modesty purposes like we see in some other cultures around the world there so um
0: kind of decorative headwear to cover your hair you mentioned silk I mean, that's not a local
2: material, no, is it? No, I mean, that's just a, yet another kind of um, piece that shows that the, they have this vast trading network um, that, of course, they have this silk coming from other places. We've also got um, things like cowrie shells from the Red Sea um, showing just how far these, these trading networks went. So, no, the, the silk wouldn't have been local, not at all.
0: The objects, obviously, can change hands. Yeah. But in one of your podcasts, I think it might have been the myth-busting one, people may have come from various far-flung places to York and bringing their own religions. I mean, you mentioned, I think, that there might have been some Muslim Vikings.
3: Yes. so uh, Vikings travelled very far and wide themselves, uh, four continents, all over Europe. They reached North Africa, Western Asia, and they reached North America as well, quite famously. Um, The Vikings who settled in the East, in areas that we would now call Ukraine and Russia, for instance, they encountered the civilizations of western asia and some of the arabic literature tells us that some of them converted to islam after arriving in that area Um, in other regions they convert to orthodox christianity and also catholicism here in york and the surrounding area but um, they also would have been exotic visitors i suppose visiting uh, their own homelands as well we don't have any written accounts of people from, for example, the Mediterranean coming to York specifically. But there are accounts, for example, of a traveller named, I think it's Ibn al-Tartushi, who came from Spain, who at th- which at this point is a Muslim country. I believe he was a Jewish traveller and he left Spain and went to Denmark. He visits the town of Hedeby and tells us all about the Vikings that he met there. And some of it is quite positive, some of it is like, oh, they're a bit weird. Uh, he doesn't like their singing in particular, their singing is like the howling of dogs, he says. And I believe there is another account, I forget his name, but it's a Spanish, uh, um Islamic Spanish account of a traveller going to a Viking town in Ireland. So there is an awareness in these other cultures of these Viking settlements in Northern Europe. And the fact that we have things like Islamic coins, we have the seashell from the Red Sea, the silk from Asia, it's entirely possible that those are being brought to us in this city by travellers and traders from these far-flung countries.
0: We touched on what women wear. As a Viking interpreter, (laughs) (laughs) what what were you wearing in
3: the Orphex Centre? So the outfit I wore, again, we we base it on um, grave goods that we find in various parts of Northern Europe. And also, we're lucky that in England we have uh, drawings in Anglo-Saxon manuscripts as well, that show us what's going on. Men appear a lot more often than women as well in these manuscripts as well. as uh, a bit of a gender bias there in the illustrations. But your basic outfit for a Viking man or, or an Anglo-Scandinavian man, I should say, is you've got a pair of trousers. Uh, the pair that I would wear are based on a pair from Denmark that were found on a bog body um, with a lovely sort of diamond swill in the wall and your tunic as well. So it's a bit like you know, a long sleeve top that goes down to just about your knees made of wool or linen and um, then depending upon your social rank you have your different kind of colors the different weaving patterns within the outfits uh, we also have got shoes which we found hundreds of so <laughs> at many shoes. Uh, no, no
2: pairs though just yeah <laughs>
3: shoes.
2: Um, they were just you know casting them out oh got a hole in this one i'll replace just the one you know a bit more um industrious i suppose
3: then for warmth we've got cloaks possibly a type of coat as well there's an example, I believe, from a Hedeby in uh, the south of Denmark, north of Germany. So trousers, top, cloak and a belt around the middle as well to hang things like, you know,
4: bags and knives from. There will have been, of course, a sizable chunk of the population, uh, the, Angles, the Anglo-Saxons, the English, uh, whatever, which way we want to call them, that would have assimilated quite well with this new culture that's coming across. Likewise, the new culture, the new ethnic group, would have assimilated well with the ethnic group that they are imposing their will upon. I'm Alex Harvey, I work for York Museums Trust, and recently I've been offered a PhD at the University of York to discuss the Anglo-Scandinavian transition of York between the Viking Age and then moving towards the Norman Conquest. When you look at the linguistic evidence from the time, you see that the English language now has got a lot of loan words from Old Norse, like slaughter for instance. But, within a few generations, these Danish settlers, their art styles, their faith, their belief system, their material culture, it starts to absorb Anglo-Saxon ideas quite quickly. Just look at a lot of the stone sculpture, the Anglo-Scandinavian crosses, the Hogback gravestones, uh, the Middleton cross and the Gosforth cross are great examples. And, of course, the uh, Sigurd Fafnispani gravestone that was found near York Minster. This is a Christian gravestone uh, found in the centre of York, but on it, it depicts Sigurd the Dragonslayer, uh, a pagan hero who kills a dragon. Um, So what we think is happening in this period is there's a pretty rapid Christian conversion of this new force of people, whether it's voluntary at first or it's done through the later military conquests of the Saxons. Uh, It's not quite clear. But it doesn't take long for the Old Norse to assimilate into the Old English, and eventually the two form what you'd call an Anglo-Scandinavian identity for the north of
0: England. Jorvik, which later becomes York, and I'll come to that in a second, it has this separate identity, doesn't it? A place where invaders want to take over Mm -hmm. and so is yorkshire i mean yorkshire is a scandinavian creation isn't it
3: um yes i mean if you if you look at the the size of yorkshire compared to the other counties in the south of england there's definitely a different kind of administrative process going on there um yeah the the vikings don't just settle this city it's the entirety of the yorkshire countryside as well Uh, if you look at the names of all the villages and the farms they've got all these viking yeah. Like a B is often the name for a settlement, like Whitby, for instance. Mm. Thwaites is a, is a common place name ending as well. Um, so they're, they're all over Yorkshire. They're, they're, they're very much in the identity of the whole county, to be honest.
2: And one of our skeletons, um, she came from farther out in Yorkshire, didn't she?
3: Yes, uh, we have three skeletons on display at Yorvick Viking Centre, And one of them we know from something called Isotope Analysis. That she's moved in from a rural area as well so there's, there's definitely a lot of people flocking from the yorkshire countryside into, into york the as big well city. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the bright lights of Yorvick.
0: <laughs> and you see those place names around you have wickington and you have haxby mm-hmm. now wickington is an anglian derivation isn't it and haxby is viking mm-hmm. now i know that until recently until the 60s there were specific identities to those villages and presumably that is the same kind of thing that happens you've got places like Cotmanthorpe Mm. so it's very much a tapestry of Anglian and Scandinavian settlements and people kind of rubbing along together and coming in from further afield Mm -hmm. do you think that separate Yorkshire identity started then of what Yorkshire people think about themselves now?
3: Quite possibly, yeah, because um, we, of course, we tend to think in, in time periods. We think, oh, 1066, Vikings are done. There we go, next period. But in reality, of course, that Viking identity is still there and the legacy of their settlement continues for centuries. So I believe, I think even as late as the late 15th century, the start of the Tudor period, you have people, you have the first printing presses trying to decide... Well, what what type of English should we be printing this in? Because in the North, they speak a weird language. (laughs) Um, I remember there's one particular text where they're printing, I think, a copy of of King Arthur's story. And the introductory chapter says, I've used the term egg in this book. Egg is what they use up North. We don't use that down South. I don't know why they call them eggs. It's, It's a strange word. So there's clearly this weird kind of you know, alien Danishness, I think, to yeah. the north of England, that continues for many, many centuries. And it's only quite recently we've kind of gelled together a bit more, I think.
2: Because even once you get to the end of the, the Viking Age as such, they, you know, like, like he said, those people don't disappear, but neither does the connection with Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still as close as it ever was. The, the kind of back and forth between the two cultures didn't really stop. Mm. It's just not ruled by Vikings anymore at that point.
3: We see continual use of runes into the medieval period in the north, but not in the south. We see names that we think of as Viking names, still used in Plantagenet times, for instance, in the north of England. So there's definitely a very different
0: culture here compared to the south for a very long time. And even today, people would mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Proudly. Um, so we've talked about names, and Iberarchum, the Roman name, Iofawik, the Anglian name. Do we know when it became Jorvik? Very difficult to answer, to
3: be honest. Again, it's this lack of uh, written evidence that we have from the period. Those three names that you've mentioned were probably all still in use together alongside one another, quite confusingly. It would depend, I guess, who you are and who you're talking to, who you're writing for. So Ibarakim, of course, is that old Latin name. Latin in the early Middle Ages is the international language of Europe, so I I would imagine that further afield people are talking about Ibarakim in all their documents. Official literature, of course, is all in Latin, so Ibarakim is, is used kind of exclusively there. In England, we're quite strange in this country that we wrote a lot of documents in our own language, so there's lots of old English literature that survives. And the Anglo-Saxon term is used throughout the entire Viking period, uh, Jófrowicz, and beyond. So for instance, even in the 12th century, because the Anglo-Saxon chronicle continues well beyond 1066. I've got a quote here from 1123. So this is the reign of Henry I. Uh, At this time, Archbishop Thurstan of York went to Rome. And in the original text, it's in my terrible old English, Archbishop Thurstan of Jófrowicz. So the Vikings, their period ended 70 years ago, but people are not using the word Jorvik in this text. They're using that older term still. But then also we've got the Old Norse literature. So the sagas, for instance, and poems, and they're using the term Jorvik. So all three terms are used at the same time, it seems. I suppose it could be a bit like how today we've got different communities that might use different Names for the same town, Derry and Londonderry, for instance. You might have nicknames, Johannesburg and Joburg, uh, Los Angeles, LA, Las Vegas, Vegas. Um, the documents don't necessarily tell us what the man on the streets is kind of saying for his hometown. And it might very much reflect your own personal cultural background, your social rank. Maybe your that's what the commoners are saying, and us upper class are saying, Eberhacken still. <laughs> But Jorvik seems to have won out in the end. It seems to have become the everyday term,
0: which then mutates into York, ultimately. Do we know when that happens? Is that much later in the medieval time?
3: Again, it's very
0: difficult to know, (laughs) because they keep
3: writing in Latin and don't write in English. Um, So I I don't know if there's a precise date we can pinpoint where York becomes the everyday term
0: used, unfortunately. But it derives from that Viking term, Jorvik writing in Latin because the clergy are quite important. Yes, church. very much so. The church is quite important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What evidence do we see of the Christianity during that Scandinavian period?
2: Christianity is what we've got the most evidence for rather than um, paganism. Um, we found um, quite a lot of crucifixes and things. We've found a, um, a silk reliquary pouch that had a cross on it and um, which would have been used by probably the clergy. Um, well,
3: well, essentially, nothing of a pagan yeah. nature, did we? Yeah, there are no Thor's hammers found at Coppergate, for instance. But we've got the crucifix, as if you said. Yeah. Um, it seems that relatively quickly, they're adopting this, this new religion of their new home. They sort of do
0: that everywhere they go, to be honest. All right. Someone's got to be doing the conversion. Mm-hmm. And we left Joffawik as being a very important Christian centre. Yeah with, I think it had an Archbishop of York, didn't it? Yes, yes, it, it did. When the Vikings turn up, presumably they didn't wipe everybody off the face of the map.
4: Well, this is one of the mysteries with this aforementioned 70-year gap. Um, and this is uh, principally the reason why I'm doing the PhD, It's to explore this this 70-year gap. We don't know, for instance, if York between 867 and 930 AD was a militarised army zone where everyone was killed and replaced by a new population or if the top layer of society the elites were killed but life was normal for everyone else they they didn't really care if they were paying taxes to an english overlord or a danish overlord Um, it's not going to matter too much as for the church because of the rapid rate of conversion that we see with york jewellery and stone sculpture we can assume that the church was allowed to continue Uh, whether or not this was immediate so upon taking of the Euphoric, the great heathen army, and its leaders said, yeah, we're not going to bother with destroying this church, they can remain, or whether it happened a few years later. Uh, by 883 AD, so roughly 20 years after the conquest, you've got a king of Northumbria called Guthrith, or Guthred, and he allegedly was born a Christian, and he's a Anglo-Dane. His reign sees quite a lot of renewal of the saints' cults in Northumbria, long before the Viking Age, so the cult of St Cuthbert. And his reign extends up into Northumberland and down to the Humber. And he's effectively a second-generation Viking, if you like, but he's already Christianised. And he's allegedly buried in York Minster, although no-one's been able to find him.
0: So the church is still quite important, and presumably there were top clergy yeah. in the city. And they're doing more than looking after people's souls.
4: Yes, uh, at this point, uh, in sort of as you move into the 10th century, the church in York, they're almost occupying both a religious and a secular position of leadership. So there's a famous figure, Wolfstan. He's a bit of a double agent or triple agent in the political turmoil of the 10th century. Uh, he's allegedly been a really good advisor to a lot of the Scandinavian kings of York and then also playing them against the Anglo-Saxon aggressors that are retaking a lot of the lost uh, territory, moving into the 950s. But even prior to him, there's evidence that the so-called kings of Jorvik were Christian. Obviously, there's Guthfrith, but after him, there are two mystery kings, if you like, uh, Sigfrothir and Knutr. And we only know about them from coin hearts, but but it, it's likely that they were at least partially Christian, due to York having such a well-established ecclesiastical centre. This is where Bede, of course, did a lot of his research in the century before. This is where Alcuin of York's from. So it's always been an important religious place, even if nowadays we can't find the original minster. So it's possible that the strong Christian presence and heritage in York had a lasting effect on these new Scandinavian rulers. Whether or not they identified as Christian doesn't necessarily matter. If they were constantly absorbing these ideals, faith was a bit sort of wibbly-wobbly back then. Uh, The Old Norse belief system very well may have adopted certain elements of Christianity, like you see on that aforementioned Sigurd Fafnissbani gravestone. And the Gosforth Cross is a really good example. Uh, That's in Cumbria, so while it's not York-specific... It's an example of an Anglo-Saxon standing cross and on its four panels you've got evidence of Jesus Christ but also the wolf Fenrir from the Ragnarok myth. So it's a blending of Christian ideals but with stories that would be familiar to Danish children perhaps to then Christianise that next generation to ensure a united future.
2: The only kind of evidence that we have that they would have brought over like the Norse kind of pagan traditions and stuff is from the money, which yeah. uh, the, is it the St. Peter's penny has the um, Thor's hammer on it.
3: Yes, yeah. so at Yorvit, you can actually have a coin made for you there. They strike a hammer on a replica coin die. Oh, my nephew's of um, Yeah. And it's a copy of the coin-making tools found on the sites. And one of the sides of the coin has that Thor's hammer on it alongside a Christian cross and the word St. Peter so it's a bit of a garbled mess to be honest (laughs) the religion of viking york but a Um,
0: metaphor for the whole city really
2: absolutely yeah yeah
0: talking about coins i mean is that a common thing because you kind of think about all this trading that there might have been quite a bit of bartering or stuff like that but Mm -hmm. in terms of what you can see from the objects and did they have a proper kind of money supply and banking system?
3: Um, York, in particular, had a very good kind of coin-based economy. Further out, if you went into the Yorkshire countryside, the further you get from York, you're going to see less and less kind of up-to-date coinage. You would imagine much more bartering is going on out there. If you're in the city itself trading, it probably depends what you're trading. Whether you're going to use a silver coin or a sack of turnips or something like that coins are very very high value objects so if you're buying like one apple for instance because you're hungry that coin is too much you could buy a tree with that sort of money so you might barter in that case if you're buying livestock or property for instance that's when coins would come in york uh would have had a good taxation system in place to remove kind of old coins and foreign coins from circulation as well. And then they'd be restruck in the local, up to date currency as well.
2: One of uh, my favorite artifacts uh, that we've mentioned on just about every podcast episode I can get into is a counterfeit uh, dirham that we found. Mm. Um so it's coin from elsewhere in the in the, you know, Viking world. Um but it was actually a counterfeit one. So it got to York and someone sussed out that it's actually not silver at all. Um, and then they just threw it on the ground because, you know, even back then people were counterfeiting money. <laughs> yeah.
3: You could test it by weighing it with, on a set of scales of weights. You could scratch it to see is it the right sort of density for silver. Oh no it's not. Ugh, get rid of that.
0: <laughs> if someone's collecting taxes and they're uh looking after the monetary system. Who is that? I mean, who are the civil servants who are managing all of this?
3: Again, the, the day-to-day operation of government is a little bit difficult to decipher. But with coinage, there are official people called moneyers who will produce coins. And we know their names as well, which is quite rare <laughs> for the period, because uh, we talk about you know heads and tails side on the coin. On one side, you might have, in some cases, the head of the king. Let's say, you know, King Canute's face is there, and it says, you know, Canute Rex Anglorum. The other side, you probably see one of the various names for York. It might say Jorvik, it might say Ibarakum, and the name of the person who's been responsible for those coins being produced, like a sort of seal of authenticity. So presumably, they've got some sort of license that's given to them that means they've got the official role you are trusted to make real legitimate coins of the correct size and silver content as well. So the implication is there's quite a sophisticated bureaucracy. Definitely, yeah. I think urban life just doesn't work without it at all. Uh, You can't manage 15,000 people without some sort of bureaucracy going on.
4: By about 9.30, the Coppergate layer, it's a little difficult to pin down who exactly is in charge of Jorvik, or what really Jorvik even represents. Moving into the 910s and the 920s, you get an influx of new Viking waves and invaders in the form of Ragnar, or Sigtriga, or uh, These are hiberno norse These are the Norwegians who had previously been occupying Dublin, which is linked to York via a trade network, and then they've been expelled by the Irish, And so they move to the next best thing, which is York. And their version of the kingdom of Jorvik seems to shrink to the point where in 954, when Eric of York is in charge of the city, after being expelled a few times beforehand, he's allegedly killed right outside the walls. So his kingdom of Jorvik is basically just the city and some fields beyond it.
0: Is this Eric Bloodaxe?
4: Well, that's up for debate. Um, It's become far too rooted now to really change the cultural zeitgeist that Eric of York is not Eric Bloodaxe. Everyone knows him as Eric Bloodaxe. He's on the mugs, isn't he? Exactly, yeah. He's he's everywhere. He's in museums. It it will say the Viking Age of York ended when Eric Bloodaxe was killed. We don't actually have any evidence that Eric Bloodaxe and Eric of York are the same person. We've got coins minted under the name Erica for York that are somewhat contemporary with later sagas that talk about Erik Bloodaxe, the son of Harald Fairhair, king of Norway. But even Harald Fairhair, recent scholarship has pointed towards him being a real semi-legendary figure, not quite King Arthur level, because he probably was real, but whether or not he was king of all Norway is, is highly sceptical. He was probably a powerful lord in southwest Norway. So all of his sons that are equally semi-legendary, with fancy names like Grey Cloak and Bloodaxe. Um, whether or not these sort of grisly fairy tales that are attributed to these people can then be applied to a real king that's ruling roughly at the same time, it's, it's unsure. There's also Eagle Saga, which is another Icelandic story, that places the Icelander eagle Scarla Grimson in York talking to Eric Bloodaxe, but whether or not that's a later author conflating the two for the sake of ease, for the sake of telling a good story, it's not too clear. There is uh, evidence that, as we talked about with Ragnar and Scythric, that Vikings in other kingdoms, when expelled, headed to York as their sort of, second home. But that's with Ireland. It is possible that exiled Norwegian dynasts went from Norway to York, seeing it as the next best thing, like a home away from home. But whether or not we can conclusively call Eric of York Eric Bloodaxe, I'm not so sure. Um, I don't think it really changes anything, whatever name you give Eric of York. I personally don't call him Eric Bloodaxe, but I think it's stuck now, and that's okay. That's sort
0: of how history goes. (laughs) Eric's gone, and he's the last Scandinavian ruler in York.
4: Yeah, as far as a secular person that we'd call a king goes, there is a archbishop after him by the name of, of Oshitel, which is a Scandinavian name, and that goes back to the second, third, fourth generations of Anglo-Scandinavians. They're now mixing, intermarrying, interbreeding, and they're they're Christian. These are no longer Vikings. These are just people with Scandinavian ancestry.
0: And what's the Kingdom of Jorvik's relationship with the rest of England?
4: Well, by that point, after 954, the Kingdom of yorvik ceases to exist. Whether or not it was ever called that at the time, um, because a lot of these monikers we apply backwards, um, this was now just a part of England. It was a borough, it was a shire, it was a county. What happens towards the middle, sort of moving into the end of the 10th century, is that elder men a.k.a. the people beneath the king, they decrease in number, but the territories that they oversee become much larger, which leads to a lot of this upper middle class becoming obscenely wealthy, because where previously Northumbria may have had three eldermen, now it's just got one, uh, as an example. So the kingdom of yorvik a.k.a. the bit around York, is now the property of elder men, and it's ruled over by them, who of course are subservient
0: to the king and also the archbishopric but presumably they've got a fair amount of autonomy
4: yeah a fair amount uh, obviously there is some political infighting in the reigns of all of Athelstan's brothers and sons and nephews rather but moving into the year 1000 uh, with Ethelred the ill-counselled or Ethelred the unready as he's called this is one england united politically, religiously probably, uh, and economically. But of course, they're under threat from elsewhere.
1: We'll be hearing more about this, but before that, we discover customers at the pavement branch haven't been the first to make a significant deposit at Lloyds Bank. Your most popular exhibit,
0: when you go on that ride, one thing that people always remember is the guy who sat in the latrine behind the fence.
2: We call him Bogar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know that the Yorkshire Museum has the wonderful York helmet. You have something much more personal from the Viking.
2: (laughs) Yes, uh, we've got the Lloydsbank turd. Um, which is, you know, the, the very classy name for it. Um, but it is a coprolite, so it is Viking poo that um, fossilised in the ground. Um, and during, um, not the Coppergate dig itself, but one very close by, um, happening at Lord Lloyd's Bank when they were expanding the vaults, um, they, they found this perfectly preserved Viking poo that we've got on display at Yorbit currently.
0: It's quite sizable.
2: It is.
3: It might have shrunk in the fossilisation process <laughs> <Yes>. as well. <laughs>
0: We can laugh about that, but it can tell you stuff about. I mean,
2: honestly, it's it's one of the most important things for archaeologists to find is copper lights because it gives you the realest understanding of what everyday people were eating and and how their health was and things like that. I mean, this copper light that we found, for example, um, he, there was evidence that he had like intestinal parasites and that his diet was was quite bread based and things like that. So you have. A very accurate understanding of what this person was like what 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 their health was and and how they were living Um, it's it's just about as personal as you can get really
0: yes quite a lot of fiber in the diet yeah mm. when you get off the train at York station it says welcome to York and there's a picture of a hat let's call it so the final question the elephant in the gift shop is <laughs> did the Vikings have horns on their helmets no No. (laughs) that's Wagner's fault yes it is yes it's a 19th century lie that got out of hand it's
3: never going to go away now we've accepted it
0: (laughs) moving swiftly on tell me about your podcast
2: Ooh, um I mean we we're still kind of you know um finding our feet a little bit two years on but we talk about I mean all manner of things really so we um try to stick as as much as possible to to york and yorvik specifically but um, we do kind of cover all of viking culture and history as much as we can mm. um we just like i said men- uh did a, a whole series of episodes on um women like in the viking age and what their life was like as everyday women as valkyries and shield maidens as women in magic and then um, we did the tale of sigrid the haughty um, so kind of, you know, what life was like for, for all manner of women during that time period. But, I mean, we talk about everything, Everything really.
3: Viking, really, <laughs> yeah. Archaeology, we do kind of like, almost like radio dramas of saga literature as well. Yeah. Just, yeah, if you like Vikings, listen to the podcast, you'll find something you like, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Everything to cater for your Viking needs. Absolutely. Yes. There'll be links in the show notes for History City... That
2: Jorvik Viking Thing podcast.
0: Excellent. I recommend it heartily. Us too. (laughs) Though for History City, other historical periods are available and will be coming soon, including another set of Scandinavians and another set of people from France of Scandinavian heritage who arrive in the, the same year, 1066, which people may have heard of. How does that affect York? The archaeology
3: that we have shows just life going on as normal in the mid-11th century. So with 1066, I think the run-up to it, the everyday people of York probably would have no idea (laughs) that their entire lives are about to, to change.
1: But whether they know it or not, York will play a central role in that pivotal year. And, as you've probably guessed, it involves several groups of heavily armed men and
0: it's a time when york plays just as important a role as that notorious small town on the south coast of england my thanks to our guests alex harvey from the yorkshire museum and to miranda schmiderer and lucas norton hosts of that yorvik viking thing podcast there are links to lucas and miranda's show yorvik viking center and yorvik viking festival in our program notes plus other internet rabbit holes to chase down In this podcast, the spirit of York is Alison Willis, and the episode was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North. If you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City, and we hope you can join us next time.